0: From WNYC in New York. This is America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call in series for President Joe Biden's first hundred days. This is day 86. Good evening again, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. And I'm Rose
1: Scott from WABE in Atlanta. Tonight, our two stations are teaming up to ask, Well, America, are we ready for voting rights after the 2020 election?
0: That's right, Rose. First, we'll evaluate the new voting law in Georgia that Biden calls an atrocity and the new Jim Crow, but the many Republicans say is being attacked unfairly. We'll talk to the Georgia Secretary of State, Republican Brad Raffensperger, who mostly but not totally supports the law in just a minute. And we should know
1: this is not just a Georgia issue. Many states are considering changes to their voting law systems after the controversies of 2020. So our second guest will be Minor Perez from the Brennan Center for Justice. They've got a 2021 state voting bills tracker that lists bills that they say would restrict voting rights and bills they say would expand
0: voting rights. Our call-in question for tonight is what kinds of reforms would give you more confidence in our electoral system. But hold your calls for now. We'll talk to Secretary of State Raffensperger first and then open the phones.
1: You know, Brian, Georgia has been in the headlines ever since Governor Brian Kemp signed into law that sweeping Republican-sponsored overhaul of states' elections. And we're going to speak to Secretary Raffensperger in just a moment, but we should note that he did come under fire from former President Donald Trump and supporters because Raffensberger would not ride the falsely, the wave of the falsely claims that, that President Trump then actually won Georgia, which we know he didn't. But that still wasn't enough for Trump supporters. So Secretary Raffensperger, as always, welcome. Good to speak to you again.
2: Hi, Rose. Thank you for having me back.
1: Let's go back to the early stages of the Republican state lawmakers drafting the provisions for Senate Bill 202. And we should note that the final bill is vastly different than its first draft. Did lawmakers seek you or someone from your office's input for this? Because that first draft was only about two pages long.
2: Uh, We spoke whenever they were asked, but uh, by and large, uh, a lot of legislature uh, came to, this, up, this past session we just had uh, really with a lot of pressure on their backs from their local constituents. So a lot of bills that were filed, and I believe leadership told them, file whatever you want, but we'll uh, make sure that at the end of the day, you know, they're going to clean it up. And they did. Uh, what we have is a measured piece of legislation. There's many good parts in it, and there's a few parts that uh, are giving some people uh, cause for concern. As you mentioned earlier, I don't support every part of the bill. Mm -hmm. But I do definitely support uh, moving away from signature match and moving towards photo ID for absentee ballots, primarily because we've been sued by both the Democrat Party and the Republican Party. So it's been bipartisan lawsuits. And it's a subjective measure, and now we're going to an objective measure. So that's a very strong positive.
1: When you say leadership told them to draft what they wanted, leadership being Governor Brian Kemp, then Former President Donald Trump, who are you spoken
2: to? General Uh, Assembly leadership, um, and then obviously maybe other outside forces outside of the state wanted, you know, things to be filed. Uh, Some people wanted much stronger, uh, restrictive uh, legislation to be passed. At the end of the day, I think the best thing is we need to look at what is the appropriate balance between accessibility and security, and I think we've hit that.
0: Mr. Secretary, after the election, you were widely praised, as Rose mentioned before, as a profile and courage, really, for being a Republican Secretary of State who held the truth higher than your party's interests when you reaffirmed that there was no election fraud that could have changed the outcome that Biden won the state. Now I've seen you quoted saying to NPR, for example, that the new law would restore confidence in the state's voting system. But you basically argued after the election that the loss of confidence in the accuracy of the vote was based on the lie from President Trump that he really won. So why would you, of all people, think any restoration of confidence is needed except to appease a fake concern?
2: Well, after the 2018 elections, Stacey Abrams talked about voter suppression, and they talked about the inaccuracy or the unreliability of the old DRE voting machines. so we passed House Bill 316, and we now have new voting machines with a verifiable paper ballot trail. I uh, Hopefully that has restored confidence on the left side of the equation. There's a verifiable paper ballot, and I think it really did. Uh, coming out of this election, there was, uh, we got it from the other side this time, and uh, as many people had concerns about signature match, both from the Democrat and Republican Party, it should be bipartisanly supported that we've moved now to a photo ID component, which is used in both red states and blue states.
0: Well, it's not just photo ID. Critiques of the law that I've read, and correct me if I have any of this wrong, think it works to make it harder to vote in urban counties, read black and Democratic by and large, and easier to vote in the rural counties, mostly white and Republican. For example, mandating exactly one drop box in each county Adds that drop box to some rural counties that had none last year, but reduces the number to only one in urban counties that had more than one. Also, it doesn't ban Sunday voting, which a lot of African American churches organized around in their Souls to the Polls voting days, but it makes counties choose either Saturday or Sunday, which they didn't have to choose before, choose between. They couldn't do both anymore. Why take away half the weekend voting days at all if not to make it harder to vote for people with more rigid weekday schedules who tend to be poor people in working-class jobs who just happen to vote more for Democrats?
2: Uh, Actually, Brian, what you just said is incorrect. What we actually passed was is now 17 days of mandatory early voting, which includes two Saturdays. And then the other two days are two Uh, optional Sunday days, and every county can actually add the Sundays, which is 19 days. So there are actually every county, all 159 counties will have Saturday voting everywhere, 159. Then counties that would like to keep Sunday voting can then uh, optionally do that, which I think many will do that. But now it'll be 17 days instead of 16 days. So it is actually one additional mandatory day, but that is two Saturdays. So I wanted to correct
0: you on that. So I stand corrected Uh, on that. Thank you. And what about the drop yeah. boxes?
2: Uh, now, in the drop boxes, what people don't realize is the day after we finished the senatorial runoff election, the number of absentee ballot drop boxes that were lawfully could be used in Georgia were zero. In other words, we passed last year, the state election board, which I had chaired at the time, a, an emergency rule to use absentee ballot drop boxes. We put them under 24-7 surveillance. And we did that for several reasons. Number one, obviously the pandemic number two, the United States postal service, which was run by the federal government, uh, was having reliability issues and that was causing concern among voters that they'd actually be able to get their absentee ballots returned in time. So when we did the absentee ballot drop boxes, that was an emergency rule that did expire upon completion of the federal runoff. So when we, then they came back into session, they were starting at a baseline of zero and they took, uh, They they received information from everyone. At the end of the day, what was passed is mandatory. All 159 counties have to have absentee ballot drop boxes. During last year, 37 counties did not have any. So that's a good thing. Now they did base a population based one for every 100,000, minimum of one per county. Already many of the counties said, I wish they would have passed a bill that allowed us to have one absentee ballot drop box for every early voting location, and I believe that is uh, uh, it is an argument that I tend to agree with and align with. But uh, we will go through this election cycle this year, which is municipal elections, and uh, hopefully the General Assembly next year will come back and revisit that. I think that when they listen to their counties and really see it in practice, I think they'll see that it may make. Um, more sense, and it'd be good policy to have additional S&D ballot drop box. It's not something that I agree uh, with what was passed 100%, but I'm glad that it's actually in law this time for the first time.
1: Well, Secretary Rastrup, you don't agree with it, but you're glad that it's a law Uh, that may sound a little bit confusing for listeners, because although you added drop boxes in all 159 counties, you look at a county like Fulton County, and I remember you telling me on the Senate runoff election night live on NPR nationwide. You said you were very proud of Fulton County. There were no problems. So if there wasn't any problems with the drop boxes, why take them away? And particularly in counties like Fulton here in DeKalb and Gwinnett, do you think one drop box inside a location for a specific period of time is enough per 100,000 voters?
2: Well, Rose, going back to your point though, last year that was not St- Georgia code that allowed that. It was really administrative code from the state election board under emergency rules. That's why we went back to zero by state law. And so anything that the General Assembly did is an addition because we started from yeah, actually point zero. As I mentioned, I believe that many of the county election directors that feel that uh, they would, uh, it would manage, help them manage their county elections more appropriately, uh, more broad-based, to have one in every early location. I think that's a very valid uh, point that's being made, uh, but it's not one that the General Assembly uh, actually ended up putting into law.
1: You will, you will you fight for the counties for this provision? Our, one of the key roles as Secretary of State is really
2: to help the counties to, to really come alongside them as their partners. So whenever there's things that we can do to to make their job I don't want to say easier, but really, uh, so that it really, the process works better, which in effect, it makes it easier, but you want to make sure that you have the appropriate balance of security and accessibility, but also we don't want to throw needless burdens in front of the counties. They do the hard work. They're the ones that have to recruit the poll workers. They're the ones that have to have everyone ready to go at 7 a.m. on election day. They're the ones that have to figure out how many precincts am I going to have early voting in? They have a lot of on their plate and whatever we can
0: do to come alongside them and assist them, that's something we strive to do. Well, Secretary and another Raffens- big part Berger- of
1: that. Oh, I'm sorry, Brian.
0: Sorry, we just have about a minute left in the segment. You earlier endorsed the voter ID requirements in this law, but real quick, if you can give me like a 30-second answer, if there is no meaningful amount of ID fraud that needs to be corrected from 2020 then why isn't just this just throwing up an obstacle to voting for the state's more economically marginalized citizens who are less likely to have those IDs? Uh,
2: 97% of all voters have a driver's license already, and the other 2.7% uh, have Social Security numbers, which is another form of identification. So for the, minor, for the remainder of 0.3% of voters that wouldn't have anything, they will be issued upon application. We'll send them a free state-issued ID. Uh, but that also then becomes a very objective standard. It's something that's being used right now in Minnesota. and The Democrat Party in Minnesota actually loves it.
0: Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and sitting for these questions.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you. It's America, Are We Ready? We'll introduce another guest and our caller question for the rest of the hour in a minute. It's America Are We Ready, oh, a Thursday night national call-in series for President Biden's first 100 days. This is Day 86. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC with Rose Scott, who in her real job is the host of the program Closer Look with Rose Scott on WABE Public Radio in Atlanta.
1: Uh, thanks a lot, Brian. And let me introduce our caller question what kinds of reforms would give you more confidence in our electoral system or what kinds of reforms would give you less? So give us a call. 844-745-TALK. That's 844 745 You can also react to anything from Secretary Brad Raffensperger said in that segment we did with him. Again, it's 844-745-TALK, 844 745
0: Yes. And listeners, you can make this personal if you have a story. Did you or anyone you know have any kind of personal voting experience last year that leads you to want something changed or maybe something from the pandemic voting systems made permanent because you think they really work for you? Absentee voting, whatever it was. 844-745-TALK. 844-745-TALK. What would give you more confidence in our electoral system? What kind of reforms and what kinds of reforms would give you less? 844-745-TALK. Rose, before we go to calls and bring on our next guest, Mm -hmm. since you host your show every weekday in Atlanta, was there anything from the conversation we just had with Secretary of State Raffensperger that reflects the greater politics or situation in Georgia right now? There's so much backlash against this law.
1: Well, I think it might have been interesting had we heard from Secretary Raffensperger during all of the commotion leading up to as the bill was being drafted. I mean, you, it was easy to just walk over to the Capitol and sit in and and give you know his thoughts on that. Also, it's interesting because in this new voting law, Brian Raffensperger, as the state's top election official, is removed as a voting member of the state election board. And so this seemingly gives the Republican-controlled state legislature, they have authority over the state election board. It also gives them control over some of the county elections in terms of suspending officials. So while the secretary agrees there's some provisions that he is not happy with or he wished that they would have not put into the bill, it might have been interesting to hear that leading up to all of this. Mm. Just just my observation.
0: And and with all this corporate pressure, Rose, including Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star Game out of Atlanta, is it having an effect? Might they change this law back again in any way? Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, or are the right people getting hurt financially even to cause the right kind of pressure?
1: Well, there are two thoughts here. And one is that economic boycotts really don't do anything. If you're talking about, are you going to boycott a corporation? Some say, well, when the All-Star Game was pulled out, that hurt many black and brown workers who work at Truist Stadium where the Atlanta Braves have their home games. That's where the All-Star Game was going to be. Others say, look, you know, you have a major film production that Will Smith was involved with that's already being pulled out. Could this cause more? You know, at the end of the day, I think folks will have to determine whether or not this will have a deep economic impact on on this state now there are five lawsuits already pending at least the number was five today could be six by in the morning Uh, will this end up in the courts who knows i mean sometimes with these measures that is just a strategy let's see if it makes it to the high court it's it's a wait and see game but in in between all of this if more corporations and more corporations are signing on to these these petitions and to these declarations that they are not in support of these laws, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the nation. you know, Is that enough pressure for Governor Brian Kemp? He is holding fast that this is this measure is not restrictive. He says it expands voting rights. Obviously, folks on the other side don't agree with that.
0: And we'll we get shall in, see. We shall see. And we'll get into some of the other states that are trying to make uh, changes to their voting laws that are similar to Georgia's. Some say even more draconian in the case of some states. And as your calls are coming in, folks, with us now to start talking about that is Myrna Perez, director of the Voting Rights and Elections Program at the think tank and advocacy group, the Brennan Center for Justice. She teaches a course at the Columbia University Law School on election law from the perspective of civil rights lawyers. And the Brennan Center has a 2021 state voting bills tracker, that documents the many proposals to expand or restrict voting rights around the country. We'll check in with her on some of those states. Myrna, thanks a lot for joining us on America Are We Ready.
3: I'm glad to be back with you guys. Thank
0: you. The Georgia law is getting so much national attention. Would you put what's happening in Georgia in the context of what's happening after last fall's elections nationwide?
3: Sure. Georgia is one of the flashpoints, but there are others. I mean, I think what is becoming very, very obvious is that some politicians around the country are looking at the changing political and demographic uh, atmosphere and deciding that they are not going to be competing for voters, but instead are going to be manipulating the rules of the game so that some people can participate and some people can't in order to better ensure their job security. Um, It's not a surprise that we're seeing these kind of restrictive laws happen in places like in Texas and Arizona and Michigan and North Carolina and certainly in places like Georgia, where not only are there uh, close elections, but more importantly, there are demographic changes afoot that are going to make future elections even closer.
1: Mayor, this is Rose Scott. You know, many folks will say, look, this is not uncommon after a a general election that the losing party might enact, you know, laws as it relates to some some voting measures. But this was different because you're looking at 47 states and correct me if I'm wrong and nearly 300 measures or has have those numbers already increased since we've been speaking with your center.
3: Yeah, I mean, those numbers are up, but I do think it is surprising. I mean, what should be happening after an election is a party should be looking at their platforms and listening to voters and figuring out what they're going to do in order to be competitive. The answer is not to be slicing voters out of the electorate, carving voters out of the electorate, because voters are supposed to choose the politicians. The politicians are not supposed to choose their voters,
0: Let's go to our first caller, and it's going to be Martha in St. Paul, Minnesota. Martha, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there.
4: Hi. How are you doing?
0: Good. I what just, are you thinking?
4: I just, I just wanted to say um, that I'm, I'm really disturbed by the, the, ch- the changes that are occurring at the state level in voting rights and voting access. And I just wanted to challenge the, the election official in Georgia— it's true that we do have uh, a state ID, which is a great thing to have for folks who don't have a driver's license. But you're not required to show an ID when you vote in Minnesota. You you register ahead, and you can actually register, I believe, on the on the day that you come in as well. So um, the main thing I want to say is you don't have to show an ID to register. So our state ID is a great a great. Um, thing to have for folks who don't have a driver's license, but um, we've had mail-in voting for many years already here, and um, we also have had and continue to be one of the highest voter turnout rates in the country. (laughs) So I'm very proud of our Secretary of State, Steve Simon. He does an incredible job, and I actually think you guys should talk to him and interview him and learn about Minnesota and how we're doing voting here.
0: We will, so we will. I just
4: wanted to say that I don't want to misrepresent the use of our state ID.
0: Very it's good, Martha. Thank you very much. And you know, Mirna Perez from the Brennan Center, um, we actually have a couple of calls on the line. People from Minnesota saying that Secretary of State Raffensberger was misleading when he said Minnesota has voter ID uh, has um, state uh, statewide ID because it's not used to prove your identification to cast a vote. For you as an expert on the voting laws of the states, is that something you can confirm?
5: Well,
3: I I also want to confirm what the callers are saying in that you don't look at one piece of an election code and say, oh, because some other progressive uh, state has that piece, that is okay. Okay. Because we're looking at a context in a state like Minnesota, which has election day registration, which has proactivity of increasing registration, which has been expanding access to uh, to mail ballots, which does let people register to vote online, um, the 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 parts that they have are going to be impacted differently, and I think that's one of the big problems with that is with the Georgia bill is Georgia has a lot of room to grow in terms of being a leader in uh, in election administration so if Georgia is going to be making even further restrictions they're going to be going in the wrong direction um, and, and I would really discourage people from uh, from being persuaded when they hear oh you know this state has X and that state also has X you need to look at the whole environment Because in some states, having a particular restriction is going to have a lot bigger impact because there's already on top of restrictions. And I hope we can talk about Texas at some point, because that's where I think it's really true. It's such a closed system. It's so regressive in so many ways. And now they're further making it regressive.
0: And we can get to that as we go. But I think, Rose, you've got the next call, right? Yeah, let's hear from Rita,
1: who's calling from Manhattan. Rita, thanks for taking the time.
3: Oh, hi, thanks so much. Um, a great show. I'm so happy you're, you're doing this. I'm good to hear your voices. Um, so I was just tweeting, actually. Um, I, I'm so tired of people talking about the water, and, and you're not talking about it. You know, depriving people of water online is nasty, but we got to keep our focus. The worst thing is because you just mentioned earlier, the legislature can replace any uh, county election official they want. They've taken uh, Raffensburger out of the mix, for that check and balance, does that mean that the GOP in Georgia can basically overturn any election they want, and therefore there'll never be a Democratic senator from Georgia again, and no president will ever get the electoral college votes from Georgia again, and then ditto, ditto, ditto for Texas, Arizona, et cetera. So is my perception accurate on that? Rose
0: is you know, represent- would- our Georgia representative? I think Rose is our Georgia representative, is that question for you perhaps? I want to
1: be fair. You
0: now, I've been doing this a long
1: time. I'm feisty, but I'm fair. If this, I, this measure giving the Republican-controlled state legislature, yeah, it does give them a little bit more control. Overturning elections, I think folks on the other side would say, not quite, but anything is possible. And I think that's the best and fairest way to answer that. Um, we've seen stranger things happen. I think also, and, and Mirna mentioned this, understand this too, and I mentioned this with Secretary Raffersberger, when this bill started, it was two pages. It ended up being 96 pages with all this other stuff. in it. And I have to give credit to one of my colleagues here in Susanna Capaluto who did a piece on it. And she said, look, this bill is a little good, a lot of bad, and a lot of petty because that's what you have here with the two major political parties You have one party who lost the state to President Biden. You have that same party that lost the two Senate seats. And then you have another party that worked really hard by their own, you know, admittance to get voters to the polls and during a pandemic. So what happens? I've said this before, and I know I sound like a broken record, but it remains to be seen. I don't want to go on record and say this means that the Republican-controlled legislature can overturn any election. I think that would, be, that would be dishonest on my part to say that. I will say anything's possible.
0: Let's take a phone call from the Atlanta area. Evan, who says he's calling from outside Atlanta. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Evan.
6: Hi there, sir. I'm actually headed through Riverdale right now on my way home. I, I just wanted to say, you know, for me, I'm a student at the university of georgia who has probably spent too much time thinking about this um the the evidence of voter fraud is little to none i think that that's something that you know hopefully most people can come to realize at some point um what there is evidence of is what can accurately be called elections fraud back in 2018 there's a county in north carolina that a lot of people haven't heard of it's called bladen county north of it is Robeson County, two thousand and eighteen. There was a midterm election that uh, it was found that the Republican running for it uh, rep- well he 's not a representative Mark Harris had hired a political operative um, who conducted what 's called a ballot harvesting operation, tainted anywhere from from a thousand to two thousand ballots, um, and the election was overturned, and there was a new one held. People were talking about it back in two thousand and eighteen, but it fell out of the news cycle. Um, You know, and for me, what I see is the potential in all of these small communities um, for individuals with influence, right, individuals who have been in the community to, uh, you know, set up what can accurately be called local political machines and influence elections. Um, You know, State State Secretary of State Raffensperger said it, right, all of the burden is on local counties, right, localities, municipalities and counties to set up elections and the resources are already thin. What I want to see is more resources directed for counties for means of oversight. Right? There are, are plenty of counties in Georgia, Dodge County being one of them, that have a history of local election fraud. Uh, it's something that isn't talked about because all that people want to talk about is national election fraud, something that, that really doesn't happen. What I want to see is, is less legislation that's policing voters um, and assuming that it's, that it's voters that are perpetuating fraud that is nonexistent and legislation that is directing resources to individuals and, uh, you know, boards, the local level, even the state level.
0: um, Um, To oversee the county county political organizations. So Mirna Perez from the Brennan Center, Uh, what do you say to Evan's question and to the example that he brought up, which we all know is real, of election fraud in a congressional election in North Carolina a couple of years ago um, that did seem to involve the ability of um, politically interested people to collect the ballots from people's homes. And then there was chicanery. Um, It happened to be that a Republican was the guilty party there, not a Democrat. But it gives an example of how one of the things that Republicans are trying to outlaw can go bad.
3: Um, I, I would say there wasn't chicanery, there was theft. Voters' ballots were being taken and they were being tampered with. And I think uh, we need to make sure that we do not conflate insiders um, manipulating the rules and victimizing voters with voter fraud. And much of the problem that we're having is that we see politicians not actually looking at the problem that we have and proposing solutions to it. Instead, they throw around the term voter fraud and then try to pass legislation that is anti-voter and doesn't actually address the problem that we, happen, that we had. Um, there should be swift and strong punishment for uh, insiders who abuse the system and perpetrate fraud upon voters. That is not the same thing as voters uh, needing to have barriers imposed upon them because they're the ones uh, supposedly committing the fraud. And it's super frustrating to hear politicians purposely purposely conflate both of them as if they were the same thing.
0: All right. Let me repeat our caller question. What kinds of reforms would give you more confidence in our electoral system? And what kinds of reforms would give you less? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. You can also continue to react if you'd like to to anything from the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger interview that we did earlier 844-745-TALK and we'll continue with Mirna Perez and some of her examples of voter suppression in new bills from around the country. Stay with us. It's America, Are We Ready?, our Thursday night national call-in series for President Biden's first hundred days. This is Day 86. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC, and along with Rose Scott from WABE, public radio in Atlanta, we're asking America, are we ready for voting rights after the 2020 election?
1: And still with us is our guest, Minor Perez, Director of the Voting Rights and Elections Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. And as Brian said, we are taking a cause on the question, what kinds of reforms would give you more confidence in our electoral system? And what kinds of reforms would give you less? And again, that number. 844-745-TALK. You can also react to anything you heard from our segment with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger that we did earlier in the program. Again, the number, 844-745-8255. And before we get to our next call, caller, I, mean, I want to just kind of go back to something that Evan said because he brought up Dodge County here in, in Georgia. And and when people hear voter fraud, and you were making this distinction, and I think it, it should be talked about... Often we hear about voter fraud. People always imagine it's because someone is trying to use, you know, the Social Security number or trying to register to vote with somebody who is deceased. But in this case, in voter fraud, you had folks trying to buy votes. It wasn't it wasn't because there was a, quote, restrictive measure in place. So when people bring up voter fraud and they bring up all these different cases, I think the distinction should be made to really really explain in the context what you're talking about when you say voter fraud is rampant here in Georgia because it's just not the case.
3: No, it's not. It's it's so often throughout history it is fraud by insiders being perpetrated upon voters. And yet we see politicians use those examples, lied the truth and then pass anti-voter legislation. I was one of the litigators in the Texas photo ID case and we kept hearing time and time again of things like oh there was a a vote buying scheme in this part of texas or that part of texas when the people that we were litigating on behalf of were like indigent folks who didn't have the money to buy milk for their children and pay for a photo id um you know these are not the same people trying to buy votes (laughs) right and so and yet um and yet that those were being examples. Those vote buying schemes were the examples being used for why we need a district photo ID law. Um, and I think what that goes to is just how pretextual these anti voter laws are. I think, I really, I think most of the politicians know that what they're saying is poppycock. Like, they know that it's not true, um, but they say it because it provides them cover, because what they really don't want to say is that we want people who aren't going to vote for us to not be able to vote.
1: Well, let's get to some callers. Let's check out Roger, who's calling outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Roger, thanks for taking the time.
7: Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I had a story just from a municipal election a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm an interim minister who spends a year or two in particular places. Home base for me is in Michigan. It makes sense then for me to have a Michigan driver's license. Uh, So in Wisconsin, you can't use an out-of-state driver's license uh, as your voter ID, which I didn't know. Uh, So I also have a passport, but I'd send it in because it's going to expire soon, and that's taking months and months and months these days to get renewed. So when I went to vote, even though I'm registered, I voted successfully in the presidential election with my passport, I was not able to establish my ID with the Michigan license that is a real ID that I can use to get on an airplane. Um, that makes no sense to me. That's just uh, trying to make it hard.
0: And what's the implication for others as you see it?
7: Uh, I feel like um, making it hard to vote often is targeted at, at, spe- at you know, specific groups of people, and it also uh, catches other people, and I think I'm in that category. I feel like I was collateral damage in attempts in Wisconsin to limit, um, make it harder for people to vote, mostly geared at, um, at Milwaukee uh, black and poor population. So there you go. the, the like minister it with the moral of the
0: story. Roger, thank you very much. Um, I Perez, I have a Michigan question for you since he talked about that example from Michigan. He gave the example of himself in Michigan Uh, on your 2021 state voting rights bills tracker. um, You look at the state of Michigan and here's a clip from the secretary of state of Michigan, Jocelyn Benson, speaking earlier today about a 39 bill package of election law changes in her state that she believes are voter suppression bills and she compares them to what just happened in Georgia. Listen.
3: Some are even more restrictive than those recently enacted in Georgia. There, voters are able to receive an absentee ballot if they include a driver's license number on their mailed-in application. Here, voters would have to make and mail a paper photocopy of their driver's license, limiting the right to vote by mail to only those who can pay to access a copy machine and requiring voters to risk identity theft in order to exercise their state constitutional right to vote absentee. Another bill would prohibit any clerk from prepaying the postage on ballot return envelopes, while yet another would empower partisan officials on the local level to effectively ban drop boxes in any county and would prohibit voters from returning their ballots in drop boxes on election day.
0: That's the, that's the Secretary of State of Georgia. So Myrna of I'm sorry, the Secretary of State of Michigan. Michigan. Myrna is the the Michigan package worse than the Georgia law, as she claims.
5: Um
3: again, as I've mentioned earlier, it's really hard to uh examine with some particularity the race to the bottom because they're different they're different environments. But what we do know is that Michigan, like Georgia had an election with a great deal of turnout. They were under tremendous scrutiny, because remember, there were all these lawsuits, you know, alleging this and alleging that, and it got explored. Both of those, uh, both of those elections got a clean bill of health, and yet we are still seeing folks try to make it harder to vote there. Um, I think it's really hard to reach any other conclusion Other than some of the politicians don't want some of the voters to be voting, because here you're having the person who is supposed to run elections, a highly scrutinized election, um, saying that there's no justification for it. And there's a lot of um, restrictions in these bills um, that aren't going to do anything uh, to make the elections more safe, but are going to put barriers in front of the ballot
1: box. Mm. Let's head up to Boston, where Peter is hanging on the line with us. Peter, thanks for taking a call.
3: Thank you.
6: What
1: would so you like to I, say, Peter? Um,
6: I'm, yeah, I'm still baffled that in 2021, we all are required to, in some way, get a piece of paper, either, either physically go somewhere to fill it out or get it mailed or this or that, send it through the mail, when all of us put all of our money all of our most personal information, all of our health information on digital platforms and transfer things digitally, I think a lot of the issue around can people get somewhere and can we stop voting on this date and that date could all be solved in some way or another if we could have everyone start electronically voting. And I'm, I'm just baffled why no one is trying to spearhead, let's get this all a digital, digital verification. There's a lot of systems to make sure a license is real. It's used every single day. So I just feel like 2021, how are we not doing this all through our phones or our computers yet?
1: You know, M- M- that's an interesting uh, comment that Peter makes. And look, you could point to a lot of quality of life issues for folks that are impacted by the digital divide, if you will. You know, there are folks who are under bank or unbanked, you know, everyone doesn't use their phone to right. do all their banking. Everyone doesn't use their phone for every other quality of life issue. You know, Through your lens as you... It's even more
3: than that, right? It's even more than that. But the technologists who don't make any money off of this do not believe that we're ready to do this. It's very hard to have both the anonymity and the security and the transparency that you need in all of your elections um, when you do things online right now. Um, The, you know, it's really... uh, it doesn't have the same sort. We're having a big national conversation about the needs for audits um because folks want to make sure that voting machines don't inaccurately record things. Um, people aren't going to know about uh point of service or other kinds of attacks that are happening in between if you have a sophisticated attacker. I think uh you know we we see a lot of people, especially people in the tech industry, who think that they um you know, they have this blockchain this or this system that that will make it secure. But the the technologists who study this just think we're not, we're not there yet. We're not ready for it. Um, there has been uh, very public hacking and stuff that's happened uh, in elections abroad. Um, and what people don't also talk about is all of the fraud that happens on online banking that banks quietly take care of. Um, So it's not really an appropriate analogy. I mean, we do need a system in which the voter can have an independent and autonomous ballot. We do need to have a measure of verifying that. And we do need to have a way of um, having some transparency and auditability of the process. And that's just not developed yet when we're talking about online voting.
0: Myrna, let me take another state from your 2021 voting bills tracker that has something in common with Georgia. Arizona is the other big traditionally Republican state that Biden won last year. And I see on your tracker that there are bills to limit absentee voting and the number of polling places, also to purge people who haven't voted in a while from the rolls at all. Can you explain the absentee ballot provisions they're considering in Arizona?
3: The one that's very controversial has to do with the uh, permanent absentee voting list. So in Arizona right now, you can get on a you can say you want to vote uh, by absentee, that's voting by mail in Arizona. And you can stay on that list, so you get a ballot every year. Um, the proposal that is causing so much controversy is that it you have to vote in both the primary, and the general in order to stay on that permanent absentee list. If not, you're going to be purged from the absentee list. And if you're used to voting um, absentee and having your mail come to you, uh, when it doesn't, it might be too late for you to go and vote in time. Um, so that's 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 one of the examples that uh, folks are folks are pretty concerned about. And again. All of this, I think all voters should be asking why. Like what are what problem are they trying to solve by making it harder to vote? There wasn't evidence of the fact that there was abuse of the uh, the permanent vote by mail list in Arizona. So why are you going to do something like requiring voters to vote in both the primary and the general in order to stay on the absentee ballot list? There's just no justification for it other than you're hoping that somebody's only going to vote on one or the other and then they're going to forget that they have to go in person until it's too late for them to, to do anything about it.
1: Mm. Let's head up to Philadelphia where Maggie Lee is standing by. Thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Maggie, you with us? Maggie is hearing us a little bit uh, on delay. But Magalie should be listening to her phone to hear us in real time. We'll give her just a second to catch up. Magalie, yes? Sure, sure.
5: Um, It's me? I mean, I should talk to the phone?
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. Listen to the phone and talk to the phone. Hi, you're on the air.
5: Hi. um, I live in Philadelphia and have been very active in elections. And we it's the first time this year — and I've lived 40 years in the city. It's the first time because of the pandemic that we have rather easier ways of voting. Otherwise, I almost envy Georgia because we have the most restrictive, voters, the most restrictive voting days, one day from seven to eight. That's it. No Saturdays, no Sundays, no early voting. It was different this year because of um, the pandemic and the vote by mail. And our legislature is going to try to move against it, but they know the Democratic governor will veto it. So that's where we are. Now, you ask what would make us confident. Uh, I've lived in enough countries where it's easy to vote. I think, first of all, Americans, and I'm one, should realize that this is a country one of the countries in the world where it is the most difficult to vote. It's actually discouraged, and that's what's happening. I would like a nonpartisan uh, election board and nonpartisan redistricting, of course. And and I would like a first a same-day registration, but I would like above all uniform standards, and that's what the Carter Center recommends.
0: Okay? Magali, thank you very much. I want to throw in that the... Um Georgia Secretary of State's office um, replied in response to our callers from Minnesota who were saying, no, you don't need a voter ID in Minnesota, that actually Minnesota requires at least an ID number or Social Security number to request and cast an absentee ballot, um, which is a change that Georgia made in SB 202 down there. So just to say that there, there are the two sides of that going back and forth as to what constitutes a voter ID requirement, um, if I gather correctly from the Secretary of State's office and from the callers from Minnesota. So we're not going to resolve that here tonight, but I wanted to respect the Secretary of State's office um, saying that they were um, misrepresented or misunderstood. Um, Myrna, to Magali's call saying how restrictive things are in Pennsylvania, Georgia would say all these blue states or blue-ish states lecturing us when many of them have fewer early voting days and even more restrictive voting laws in the first place than we do. What would you say to that? I
3: would say the question is... Which direction are you going in? It's not a function of saying, like, where, uh, what, a, what a state has or what a state doesn't have. Are you moving toward more access or are you moving to be more closed? And what we are seeing in Georgia is an inescapable move in the wrong direction. It is not uh, trying to expand the electorate, it's not trying to increase access, it's not trying to make sure our elections are more. Uh, free and fair Um, instead we're trying to see we're seeing barriers being imposed um, uh, empowering uh, the legislature to have more control over the elections we're seeing uh, uh, restrictions on uh, being lifted on how many people can challenge voters at the polls Um, that is not something to be proud of that is not something to be proud of and just because you can point to one tiny piece of somebody else 's election system and say they have that too um, is not a path and that um, we should has have to all country
0: all I'm states sorry? yes i 'm sorry, sorry to cut you off, but I- we are out of time, and that 's it for tonight 's edition of America. Are we ready? Our Thursday night national call in show for president biden 's first hundred days, thanks to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger who was on earlier, and Mirna Perez from the Brennan Center for Justice. Mirna, thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Listeners, as always, thanks for your calls. You make the show what it is. And special thanks to Rose Scott, host of Closer Look, weekdays on WABE in Atlanta. Rose, thanks for your Georgia knowledge and journalistic wisdom. It's been great working with you again.
1: Thank you. You need two hours,
0: buddy. <laughs> Maybe together we'll get three. Next Thursday will be Day 93, our second-to-last show in this series. It will also be Earth Day, April 22nd, and we'll talk to the chair of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors, Cecilia Rouse, about the economic implications of climate change and the efforts to fight it. I'm Brian there. Thanks for listening to America. Are we ready?